Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In chapter 14 of his famous 19th century critique of political economy, Karl Marx writes, the simplicity of the Asiatic productive organism supplies the key to the riddle of the unchangeability of Asiatic societies. A reality, he continues, that lies in such striking contrast with the constant dissolution and refounding of Asiatic states and the never-ceasing changes of dynasty. The notion that the history of the pre-modern Orient is an unchanging and immutable one defined by its society's simplistic Asiatic mode of production and its rulers' narrowly absolutist Oriental despotism has proven surprisingly tenacious today when modern depictions of Muslim caliphs and sultans hold them to have governed either despotically or not at all. One result of this intellectual edifice is the notion that before the Ottoman Empire, the dynasties of the Islamic Middle East produced few documents and preserved even fewer. But as Marina Rustow, our guest for today, shows us in her new book, The Lost Archive, Traces of a Caliphate in a Cairo Synagogue, published with Princeton University Press, a studied glimpse into the Cairo Geniza changes all of that. A collection of nearly half a million Fatimid-era documents stored in the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Cairo's residential and commercial sibling, Fustat, and preserved as a miracle at the intersection of settled civilization and desert. The Cairo Geniza was dubbed by the Jewish ethnographer and Arabist Shlomo Dov Goitain as the Living Sea Scrolls. And it has been Marina's playground for years. Examining the Arabic-language Fatimid state documents found in the Geniza, and often neglected by Jewish studies scholars in favor of the Hebrew script texts on the verso of these pages, Marina invites us to reconsider the long-standing but mistaken consensus that we've reached about the Muslim world before the Ottoman Empire. What can the Cairo Geniza tell us about the Muslim world at a time when most of the world's Jews were living under Islamic rule? and when a significant proportion of Fatimid subjects were non-Muslim. Welcome to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nancy Coe, and today we have the great pleasure of hearing from Marina herself. Marina Rastow is a social historian of the medieval Middle East and the Khidori Abu Dizilcha Professor of Jewish Civilization in the Near East at Princeton University, where she also heads up the renowned Princeton Geniza Lab. Welcome to the network, Marina. We're absolutely delighted to have you. Great to be here. So as the subtitle to your book suggests, you've been spending the past several years, if not decades, helping us wrap our heads around the paradox that our single greatest source of medieval Arabic documents comes from the attic of a Jewish synagogue. How did we get here? And and how did you get here to the Geniza 
as a concept, as a practice, and as an archive. So how did we get here? The I can tell you in 634 pages or less, but basically there were, I mean, let me put it this way, that if, if the Romans and the Ottomans are like the pack rats of history, so the Romans, from what we know of papyri in Egypt, wanted everything archived in triplicate. And in the Ottoman archives in Istanbul, there are millions of documents that we are not going to get through in our lifetimes. The Fatimids ran a very lean archive. So they were constantly pruning and getting rid of any document that they didn't need to have around, in addition to which they didn't keep copies. They kept everything centrally archived in Cairo. And so what that meant is that there was a lot of waste paper going on to the used paper market. And that's one way Jewish scribes in medieval Fustat got their hands on government documents to fill the blank spaces with Hebrew script. How I got here you know, it's always a kind of long and twisty story. I was trained to work on the Hebrew script documents of the Geniza, as most of us who work on the Geniza are. But I was preceded in my interest in the Arabic script documents by two fantastic paleographers and historians, S.M. Stern, who died in 1969, when I was just a baby, and Jeffrey Kahn, who published a monumental set of editions of the Arabic script documents of the Geniza divided into two categories, the legal documents from Qadi courts. That's the first half of the book. And the second half of the book is documents related to the state, which he calls administrative documents. So I knew that there were Arabic script documents and I knew that they were important, but I made two kind of fatal assumptions that I then had to undo. The first was that Jeffrey Kahn's book, which is called Arabic Legal and Administrative Documents from the Cambridge Geniza Collections, that he had pretty much covered all of the documents from Cambridge. The second, which wasn't true, it turns out there were way, way more documents in Cambridge than, than Jeffrey could cover in a, single, in a single book. The second assumption was that between Stern and Kahn, they had covered all of the genres that had survived of these Arabic script documents. And that turned out also not to be true, but unfortunately it meant I was on uncharted territory, which is never a very comfortable place to be. Colleagues of mine, I mean, I learned in the course of researching this book, I published a little, a little piece in the newsletter of the Cambridge Geniza unit. They have this wonderful newsletter where, you know, every once in a while they feature like ongoing research. And so I talked about a Fatimid decree that had been recycled for a rabbinic work. And I received an email from one of the great rabbinic literature scholars of our generation, Shama Friedman, saying, oh, now I understand why uh, a bifolio from the Babylonian Talmud that I published in 1986 has a gigantic line of Arabic going across. In other words, people were actually aware that these things existed, but nobody you know, had the context to understand what they were. And the other thing with the Arabic of these documents is that it's, it's this strange kind of paradox where it's, it's very calligraphic. It's beautiful, beautiful proportion script with a variable with ductus. I mean, it's clearly written um, by scribes who knew what they were doing. At the same time, it's unpointed and the scribes never wanted to lift the pen. So it's full of abusive ligatures and it's really hard to read, despite the fact that it's also beautiful calligraphy. So it's that tension of the kind of professionalism and, and practiced hand on, on the one side 
and on the other, the, the difficulty of deciphering the stuff that had me completely hooked. And then I just, I couldn't stop. That's kind of the, the outer shell. There was also an inner shell of the questions that I was asking. Um, I was interested in Jews and the state and, and still am. I mean, it's a fascinating question in Jewish history, how to essentially reflect on how Jews interacted with the different states under which they've lived, but also to use Jewish history as a prism through which to reflect the history of various governments. And, you know, one of the problems that we have with medieval Middle Eastern studies is that our view of governments is so narrow. We understand what was going on in the courts. Sometimes we get a glimpse of what was happening in the bureaucracies. There's a lot of stuff about caliphs and viziers. There's much less about the kind of faceless bureaucrats and even less about how the anonymous masses, um, the rural masses, even the urban masses interacted with the state. And so I thought research, doing a book on Jews in the state would be a great opportunity to, to learn something new. And the more I researched the book, the more I realized that actually this could be a book just on the state. There's so little that, you know, that I had to go on. And I really felt like before I do a book on Jews in the state, I actually have to understand the state itself. Right. And it's funny because I feel like when we think about this period, if we scope out to medieval Islam more generally, not just the Fatimid period, from the 9th or 10th century to maybe like the 14th, we tend to think of the like consciously curated works of philosophers and scientists like Ibn Sina or, you know, Abu Hamid al-Fazali or, or, or Rumi. We don't think necessarily of archival sources in the sense that you're thinking of them. And it strikes me when you tell that story about the Talmudic scholar Shama Friedman that part of this is because in order to comprehend the scale, but also the mechanics of archiving for the medieval Islamic world, a certain level of collaboration on our part is required. So can you talk a little bit more about the role that collaboration played um, both with your deceased predecessors, um, like Goitain, but also with those that you're working with today in writing this book and, and trying to comprehend what the Geniza tells us about the workings of an Islamic state. So collaboration is absolutely central to what I do. And I've tried my best to set up collaborative spaces like the Geniza Lab at Princeton. But even before I came to Princeton, I was applying for collaborative research grants because, I mean, I think every field benefits from collaboration, but the, the Geniza in particular, there are a couple of ways in which you're really kind of handicapping yourself if you don't collaborate. So one is the, the paleography. Um, it's daunting and it's much, much easier to do in company. So I found myself reaching out to a group of, you know, three or four trusted Arabic paleographers, one of whom is Jeffrey Kahn, who's an, you know, just an absolute genius at reading things that no one else can read. Another is Naim Fantihem, um, in in Paris, actually, he he lives in Belgium, but he he works in Paris. Who is originally a Greek papyrologist who also does Coptic and Arabic, and he also is amazing at reading everything. And then Tamara Lethi, who has this breadth of historical context when he reads these documents and kind of knows how to do things with them. So I had these weekly sessions where I was reading with people, and. I thought I was doing it as a crutch because I had been trained in Hebrew paleography, not Arabic paleography, and I needed help. But I, I, I came to realize that it's just better this way, that, that even for, for my 
for my partners in crime, they were also benefiting from reading in company. Part of it is that you set aside time in your week when you're actually doing it. Otherwise, it could easily go by the wayside. But the second, I mean, people who who go to um, any kind of you know seminary, this is certainly true in yeshivas. This is apparently true in Tibetan monasteries as well. Um, if you read a text on your own, your concentration will flag and you won't be able to go as deep or as long as if you do it with somebody else. If you do it with somebody else and you do it in discussion, you can go for hours and hours and hours and have no idea where the time has gone. So that's the first level of collaboration. I think we're taught, you know, as people who kind of have to prove uh, our, our metal as scholars by being you know, trained in the languages, trained in reading the documents, that we have to do it all on our own. All of the major milestones that we have in academia, so getting the PhD, getting a job, getting tenure, all the promotions, all of this is predicated on doing solo work, the single authored monograph, when in fact, some of the best work is done collaboratively. So that's the the first level. The second level of collaboration is the Geniza is filled with just a vast amount of incredibly variegated texts. So we have literary texts and documentary texts. Within the literary texts, there's medicine, liturgy, um, you know, astronomy, uh, chronicles. There's there's every conceivable genre. And then for the documentary texts, it's a whole other story where you have legal documents in several different genres. You have letters, lists, accounts, and each of these genres not only has its own conventions and its own way of using language or languages, because it's usually Hebrew, Aramaic, and Judeo-Arabic and Arabic in some mixture, um, but also its own um, its own paleography, its own paleographic problems, right? So um, I found reading the Fatimid state documents that the fiscal hands were completely different from the administrative hands. Um, you know, the, the, the people dealing with fiscal People, people working in the fiscal, manning the fiscal administration, um, writing the tax receipts, writing the accounts, were writing in a very, very different kind of Arabic script um, from the ones writing the decrees um, and the petitions. Um, and so this kind of specialization um, of the scribes that we're reading um, has also produced a specialization among the scholars who are reading their output. Um, so, you know, I, I've read legal documents from, from rabbinical courts, but by no means are they my area of specialization. But I can turn to my colleague Eve Krakowski or Oded Zinger when I want to understand what the legal document on the back of the letter that I'm reading um, is all about. So, you know, there too, I think um, the, the benefits of collaboration um, you know, n- nobody should deny themselves this uh, this advantage in scholarship. This this is something that certainly resonates with me as I depend on my friend McKenna Mezzitano to help me get through Ladino documents handwritten in Solitreo. You know, I would be absolutely hopeless without her. So absolutely. Um, so I want to take a couple of steps back because I think that what you're talking about here, this sort of heterogeneity of genres of writing um, in the Geniza. And we're talking, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, there are also like grocery lists that you found um, that yes. a, a kind of founding premise of this is that this archive of social life in the medieval world and this archive of an Islamic 
caliphate exists partially because it, it wasn't for posterity. So can you tell us a little bit more about what a Geniza is after all, and how Jewish was this Geniza? Um, and what are the sort of range of things that you found within it itself? So um, the question of what is a Geniza is a fascinating one because there's no one answer. And uh, people in the Geniza field um, generally only give one answer, but actually I think there, we're discovering that there are, there are more, than, more answers than we realize. So the, the straight answer that we you know, tell our students um, is that there's a, a prohibition or at least a taboo um, in Judaism against destroying any text that might contain or that does contain the, the name of God in Hebrew script. And since many documents begin with a divine invocation, which is, by the way, something that the Jews got from the Muslims, only the Jews do it in Aramaic, um, the potential for any document to contain the name of God is, is extremely high. And so everything should be, instead of um, destroyed deliberately, discarded um, and allowed, like it's just discarded in a kind of limbo and allowed to decay. Um, over time. So here you're referring to Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, except in Aramaic, whatever that would be. <laughs> it's Bismah Rahmana, exactly, um, which kind of sounds like Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. It's just shorter. Right. <laughs> um, so, so that's the, that's the kind of you know usual answer that we give. It's a much more complicated story because if you go back to the passages in the Talmud that actually talk about what you do with texts, sacred texts after they've become worn out. The range of answers um, that the Talmud gives is, is, is much fuller. I mean, you know, there's, there's burning, there's washing, there's all kinds of different approaches. And how that custom evolved between the closing of the Babylonian Talmud in whenever that was, 600, 700, there's debate, um, and what was going on in the Cairo Geniza, which was in a synagogue that was built starting in 1025, nobody knows. Nobody knows how that, that custom evolved. All we know is that the diversity of texts, or yes, as you put it, the heterogeneity, um, suggests that there was a much wider custom, that this wasn't narrowly construed at all. So now what I tell my students is, if you could do ethnographic research um, in 11th and 12th century Fustat, and you went around asking Jews, hey, why do you put stuff in the Geniza? You'd probably get as many answers as there are Jews. As the, as the joke goes. In other words, people interpret customs um, in a wide variety of ways. So the other thing is that as I was writing The Lost Archive, I came to understand that this wasn't just a Jewish custom. If you think about the fact that the earliest Quran manuscripts that we have come from the Umayyad Mosque in Sana'a in Yemen, where they were immured between the ceiling and the roof of the mosque basically in a kind of special chamber reserved for worn texts. Or if you think about another Umayyad mosque, the one in Damascus, where a structure in the courtyard, the Qubat al-Khazna, preserved about 200,000 texts in a wide variety of languages, but for the most part Arabic. And they were books that were decaying. There were documents that were like bundled into mini archives. They were sitting on shelves. They were sitting on the floor. There's, there's this idea that you don't discard texts, you kind of put them away, and you put them away in such a way that people can't mess with them or touch them. The, the other example, which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it, is Dunhuang on the Silk Road, so-called Silk Road, 
there was a, um, a, a structure in which about 40 to 60,000 texts, I can't quite remember the number, um, were immured. In other words, put behind a wall and sort of closed in in the 11th century. This was discovered right around the same time that the Chiragonesa came to light. Um, so in 1900, the Geniza came to light starting in the um, 1860s, but it was finally emptied in 1897. So there does seem to have been a general pre-modern tendency to regard texts as having a kind of life of their own where they should be allowed to decay naturally and not be destroyed deliberately. That is absolutely fascinating. So I wonder, in the spirit of collaboration and the work that you do in the Princeton Geniza Lab, if we could kind of do a little lab of our own here. I was particularly fascinated by a story that you tell in your book about the She'il Tot and the work of Roni Shweka. Um, as you tell it, Shweka was one of the big brains behind the Friedberg Geniza project, which, by the way, um, for those in our audience who are interested, is a great online repository of Geniza fragments. And he studies post-Talmudic rabbinic literature from the period of Geonim. And at one point, he set out to find as many fragments as he could of this post-Talmudic work called the She'il Tot, which were compiled, I think, in the mid-8th century from a town um, near Basra in Iraq. And he comes to you, right? Having gathered a number of these fragments, more than a hundred of them, certainly, and and had had also fit at least some of them together in a kind of curious long vertical scroll, on the back of which, or like, well, what for him was the back, was um, some Arabic writing. So I wanted to ask you about your own encounter with the Sheol Tot and with what was for Shweka the back of the Sheol Tot um, in Arabic. Yeah, this was this was really like one of the one of the greatest days of my career. Um, so Ronnie Shweka and I and a couple of other colleagues, Judith Alshobi Schlanger, who's a Hebrew codicologist and paleographer, um, and Ronnie Volant, um, who studies um, Arabic, Syriac, and Hebrew and Judeo-Arabic, um, especially the transmission of the biblical text, but, but other texts as well. So the four of us were on this fellowship. There were other scholars there as well, but these were my, this was my posse. Um, and it was a fellowship in, in Oxford um, at the Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies. Um, and the theme of the fellowship, this is 2011, um, was the material aspects of uh, Geniza texts. Um, and I mean, Jewish manuscripts in general, perhaps. I don't know. I can't quite remember what the remit was. But in any case, we were all researching the material aspects of texts. And the four of us were, were interested in Geniza texts. So we're sitting in the, uh, in the Oriental Institute Library in Oxford. And Ronnie um, comes over to me and says, I found something you might be interested in. And he's like carrying his laptop. And he shows me this puzzle that he's put together of a text of the She'il Tot. And I knew he was looking for fragments of the She'il Tot which by the way, his teachers had told him, don't bother looking for fragments of the Shade Tot. It's a closed case. Um, there's nothing more we can learn about it. And he was uh, smart enough and stubborn enough not to listen to them. And he found um, uh, 120 fragments, or he had found 120 fragments by that point. Um, the lesson out here, I think, is to not listen to your advisors occasionally. Yeah, right. Or, or at least don't listen to anybody who tells you it's a closed case, because cases are never closed. Um, so. He, uh, six of these fragments, he'd managed to piece together 
into a long vertical scroll, what um, uh, is technically called a rotulus. And, um, and so he shows me his rotulus of the shade tote and I um, congratulated him. I was, you know, so, so happy that he found this. The handwriting um, immediately spoke to me because I knew who the scribe was. Um, and so that was it, you know, this is like another example of collaboration where um, Ronnie Shueka studies the literary Geniza, among other things. And so, you know, he doesn't know the personalities of the scribes the way somebody who studies the letters and the legal documents would, where they're signing their name. Um, so he shows it to me and I said, yeah, I actually know who wrote this. And, he, and, and that wasn't why he was showing it to me. He was showing it to me because on the backside of this Rotulus of the Shigitot, um, were gigantic lines of calligraphic Arabic with like, you know, 10 centimeters between the lines. And I said, wow, you've just pieced together um, a meter of a Fatimid decree that I myself never could have pieced together because of the blank space between the lines. In other words, precisely the density of writing on the Hebrew Aramaic side that allowed Ronnie to piece this together, um, whereas the vast blank spaces um, on on the original side, on on what was the recto, um, would have prevented me from ever, you know, doing this incredible act of, of joinery that he did. Um, so then the question became, what is this object? So on the one hand, you have a Fatima decree. How did it get into the hands of this scribe, Ephraim ben Shmaria, who was the um, head of the congregation of the synagogue where the Geniza was was kept? between about 1020 and 1055. Um, how did it get into his hands? And then as Ronnie began to study this text of the Shevetot, it didn't match any of the other texts that we knew from manuscripts that had been preserved in Europe and um, in the Byzantine Empire. So um, he, what he saw was a very strange recension. Recension is like a technical term for a version of a text that circulates that isn't the same as the as the other ones. And sometimes it's an it's an author who made a different recension because you know you have like version A and version B, like the updated edition. Um, and sometimes it's the scribes who are just kind of riffing on the text, and then that circulates as um, the original text. So was this like there were passages that were out of order. There was wording that was a little odd compared to the other recensions. So was this a different recension or was this just an idiosyncratic performance of the text by this, um, this guy, a friend Ben Shmaria? So we didn't have the answer to this question until like, I think two years later when we got an email from a graduate student in Germany who said, I found another piece of it. Um, so she had found another 20 centimeters and it turned out to be the top of the scroll, and at the top of the scroll, there was a heading in Hebrew, um, and the words were Shabbat Breshit, which means the Sabbath of the first, um, the first reading of the whole cycle of reading the reading the Torah. So at that point, we understood that what Ephraim ben Shmaya had to do was to produce a sermon, and he had to produce a sermon for that particular um, Shabbat, that particular week or Saturday morning. And um, he probably had to produce tons of these sermons. So if you have to produce tons of sermons, you're not going to come up with all of your own material. You're going to recycle. And so what he did was um, he recycled in two ways. One is he pulled a book of the Shade Toad off the shelf and started riffing on it. And it was, in fact, an idiosyncratic performance for a specific occasion um, of this text. And that's why the text seems so messed up compared to what we knew of it. 
Um, and the second act of recycling he performed was he had a ready-made rotulus in the form of this discarded coffin of decree. So what this object said to me is, you know, there's this, there's this line in the um, chronicles of the Fatimid period that say that when Salahuddin abolished the Fatimid Caliphate in 1171, the, the Fatimid treasury, the books like were, you know, dumped and the number of books that's given is like, you know, wildly inflated, maybe not, I don't know, a million, 600,000 books or something like that. So the question is, did the Ayyubas destroy the Fatimid archives? Here we had a Fatimid decree that was recycled before 1055. That's the death date of Ephraim ben Shmaria. And if it was recycled before 1055, then that means that the Fatimid archive was being um, emptied even during the Fatimid period itself. And that's that kind of leanness <clears throat> of archiving that I mentioned um, that I mentioned earlier. So yeah, that was for me that that moment was a, was like a revelation. And um, so I devoted a whole chapter to that one document in the book, because it's kind of like the entire problem in a nutshell. Right. There's so many questions that I have from this incredible story. I, I think one of them is actually about the form of the decree itself. Um, you talk a little bit in your first book about the proliferation of decrees in this point in time and the ways in which, for example, Karaite and Rabbinite Jews um, turn to the state for dispute resolution. Um, and this is via petitions, which of course are sort of a different kind of subtext um, for de decrees as a form. Um, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about this genre and in what ways the decree as a kind of genre influenced your yeah, thinking so, about um, the Fatimid state. The, the as a decree state problem, I mean, it, it took me years to kind of like figure out what was going on with this, um, partly because I was influenced again. There's a tendency when we look at the people who have worked in our field, um, you know, over the past 50, 100 years to assume that what's been written is also the sum total of what could have been written. When in fact, there's always there's always more like we're just studying a little corner and then, you know, our students will come along and show that um, that's really just a tiny, tiny portion of what there is. So S.M. Stern, who was really the first person to, to understand um, that there are documents and that they're worth trying to dig out, um, published an amazing book in 1964 called Fatimid Decrees, um, Original Documents from the Fatimid Chancery, where he pulled eight Fatimid decrees um, from the archives of the Monastery of St. Catherine in Sinai. He never saw the originals. He worked entirely from microfilm. Um, there was an American expedition to Sinai in the 1950s that microfilmed um, these texts. And by the way, they're now online in high resolution um, images made from the microfilm. So you can you can study them. And there are tons of texts. It's not just Fatimid texts, but Stern uh, took the Fatimid ones. Um, and and then decree number nine was from the Karite synagogue in Cairo. Um, and it's still in Cairo today. Um, and decree number 10 was, I think, from one of the branches of, um, of St. Catherine, you know, outside of, of Egypt. Um, and every single one of these decrees was written in response to a petition um, from some religious group. And so what that did was to create the kind of optical illusion that the only time the Fatimids issued decrees was when they were responding to petitioners. So S.D. Goitain, who's the great... Um, progenitor of documentary Geniza studies, um, he kind of took that as a given 
and um, and also assumed that the Fatimids essentially governed by being petitioned. People would petition the government, the government would come out with a decree, and that was their main mechanism of actually like deciding of making any decisions. What I found, um, I mean, just to go back to this decree uh, that Ronnie Shweka pieced together um, as an example, is that a lot of these decrees had absolutely nothing to do with petitions. In fact, they were internal government documents. So the the um, Sheitot decree um, was actually about water management um, and and canals. Um, in other words, infrastructural, like very technical um, level stuff. It was um, issued from the Chancery in Cairo and sent to some local administrator. So most of the decree fragments that I found in the Geniza fit that description. In other words, they weren't decrees in response to petitions. They were decrees in the normal course of business. Um, so that already was an indication to me that this is a much, much larger government system than either Stern or Goytein had understood. Um, at the same time, I was also finding lots of other types of government documents. Um, there are internal memoranda. So the decrees are internal memoranda in the sense that they're from one government official to another, but they're they're kind of performative in the sense that it's a high level official who's giving an order to a lower level official. And when you give an order, you have to do it with a certain amount of pomp and circumstance for it to be convincing. And having a widely spaced, really fancy looking, very long decree is a way of doing that. Once the official receives the decree, he has no reason to keep it because in fact, that decree is being archived in Cairo in a much more compact form. So that's how these decrees get out onto the open market. There are also, and this is something I mentioned in the book, but I didn't go very deeply into it, and this would be like a book of its own. There are also internal internal memoranda sent from one official to another, either in the same level in the hierarchy or higher up in the hierarchy, basically reporting on conditions on the ground or asking for, you know, can you go and collect the bricks from this ruined mosque so that we can re- reuse them, stuff like that. Um, and they're not as fancy. The, the line spacing is generally not as wide, but they are written in this unmistakable um, Fatimid high-level uh, government, like bureaucratic hand. Um, and there are hundreds and hundreds of these. They're not easy to read, but they give you a kind of glimpse of the business of statecraft in the Fatimid world and the detailed um, administration of, um, of basically, you know, infrastructure on the ground. Um, you know, there are sugar mills um, that have to be uh, repaired and maintained. There are canals that have to be dredged. There are uh, emirs who won't allow you to collect the tax on their estates um, and you have to pressure them and please send me some um some law enforcement so that I can get these people to render their taxes. Um, there are things that need to be transported to the capital. There are roulams um, and eunuchs who are bringing things from one place to another. I mean, you get this sense of a kind of, you know, scurrying network of state officials um, that makes the state look so much larger and more pervasive than what either Stern or Goytime believed. Um, I have to say, when I go back to Jeffrey Kahn's Arabic legal and administrative documents, I, you know, even though the the purpose of that book was simply to do some additions and translations of these documents, you can see that the vision of the Fatimid and the Ayyubid state that Khan has in his mind as he's dealing with these documents 
is the much fuller vision that I'm talking about. He doesn't always articulate it in detail, but you can see that he he understands that this is a much, much bigger picture than what either Stern or Goytime believed. Do you sense or have you been able to glean from both petitions and decrees how much they've departed or derived from prior Umayyad or rival Abbasid conventions? And what can this tell us maybe about the stakes of decree granting as a practice? So um, we all dream of finding the lost Abbasid archives. And I have to say, um, (laughs) there was this one email that I sent to Jeffrey Kahn at some point over the course of writing the book. Um, Jeffrey Kahn had published 20 tax receipts from a single archive, from the archive of, of one single person, um, in the early uh, 11th century during the period of Al-Hakim. Um, and over the space of like three months, Naim Fentihem, Tamar Alethi, and I found another 16 from the same archive. And we were like so excited about it. And so I send Jeffrey Khan this email. Like, I don't remember if the subject head was like in all caps with like a million exclamation points. So he writes back to me and he says in his like wonderfully laconic British way, from the tone of your email, I thought that you were going to tell me you had discovered the lost Abbasid archives. Um, in any case, nobody's discovered it, but we do have um, a, a couple of proxies for it. So one is the fact that um, when uh, when Ernst Herzfeld excavated uh, Samarra, so the Abbasid capital of the ninth century um, in Iraq, after the Abbasids had had left Baghdad because things were too crazy there, so they set up another capital in Samarra, and um, it was the capital for you know seventy odd years. Um, And it was excavated in the 1930s. And the nice thing about excavating a capital that was only used for 70 years is that it's very easy to date everything that you're finding. So there were five documents that um, emerged from that excavation, which, by the way, still have not been edited or published, which is kind of amazing. Um, Hertzfeld did some wonderful tracings of them and has nice plates in his book on Samarra, which came out in 19, I think, 40 something. But the texts still haven't been deciphered. In any case, one of them is a fiscal account on papyrus that has an amazing hand on it that for me was like the missing link between the Umayyad government texts that we have in relative abundance from Syria and and Egypt on the one hand and the Fatimid texts on the other. And it was at that point that I understood that, I mean, this, this is true on so many in so many different fields of endeavor that the the Easterners are moving West and the Eastern styles are moving West. Over the course of the ninth and 10th century, you have so many um, craftsmen and also literate people, merchants moving from Iraq and Iran to Egypt and Syria. And you see it in the nisbas, you see it um, in, the, in the styles of art even, you see it in the ceramic record. And in this case, I was seeing it in the documentary record as well, that the Abbasids had clearly set a kind of precedent for the production of government documents that the Fatimids were following and expanding upon. So that, so that's, that was one proxy, was a slightly earlier stage of Abbasid document production. The other proxy is there are Abbasid government officials, especially during the Buyid period, who talk a lot about what the ideal way of writing a document is. A document or even, you know, they talk about scribal hands as well. And everything that I was reading about these hands, I was seeing in the Fatimid documents. So basically from all this kind of circumstantial evidence, 
um, sorry, there's a third proxy that I should mention, which is the so-called Afghan Geniza, which isn't really a Geniza. It's just a, a bunch of documents that emerged from Afghanistan in the 1990s um, that are being published now. Um, and in those documents, some of them are in Hebrew script, some of them are in Arabic script, but the Arabic script ones, the ones from about 1000 are like a different conjugation of the Fatimid Chancery script. And so here I was seeing kind of evidence that this Abbasid style was moving east and, and west. So in sum, a lot of circumstantial evidence for what the Abbasid archives might have looked like. And that made me realize that the Fatimid documents were kind of the best representation that we have of what an Abbasid document must have looked like in this period. So along those lines, I was actually wondering if we could talk about the cover of your book, um, because you talk about the ways in which, you know, Fatimid documents are, are, are taking on some of the features of Abbasid documents. And you already sort of alluded to some of those features. So um, the, the the verso of the Sheol Totes, right, the, the lines in Arabic are too far apart from each other to put, to piece the documents together without having the much more cramped Hebrew on the, on the other side. And so that seems to be one characteristic. It's sort of um, the more formal the decree, the wider the spacing. Can you talk a little bit about the other characteristics that so we might take the, for, for granted? The, the wide line spacing to, to looking at is these documents? the thing that really strikes you the first time you look at these things. Um, the, the jacket illustration um, is from a 13th century manuscript that was produced um, much farther east than anything um, I do in, in the book. Um, and by the 13th century, this aesthetic of the of the decree was so well established that when the painter of this manuscript wanted to draw the angels um, at the final judgment, deciding on man's deeds, like tallying up um, the good deeds and the bad deeds, um, the angels were drawn um, as writing on these chancery decree, um, like rotally with very wide line spacing because they're they're being pictured as government officials, which I thought was wonderful. This is a kind of recognizable iconography by that period. So you see the wide line spacing. When you look closely at the decrees, there are, there are a few other things that are absolutely consistent. The first is a very generous right margin. So in general, the aesthetic is like, we're going to waste as much paper as we want, what Tamarulethi calls the sovereign privilege of waste. And the the second thing about them is the calligraphy there is a particularity of it that, um, you know, even though I've been looking at these things like for years, it's it's not always easy to define these things with precision. And in the end, I realize you actually have to get out like a ruler and a protractor and start measuring, or you're not actually going to understand what's happening on the page. So one of the characteristic things is that the baseline, so the imaginary line on which the writing is arranged, breaks up, meaning it's like a stair step effect where each word, and in some cases half a word, exists on its own baseline. And that kind of stair step like effect of the breaking up of the baseline produces a curvature of the lines where the lines curve slightly downward and then markedly upward to the point where at the ends of the lines, the words are actually stacked on top of each other. That is an aesthetic that will be familiar to any of our listeners who have ever looked at, like, let's say, an Ottoman. Um, Firman or any of the later documents from Islamic chanceries, they all um, continue this aesthetic of the curvature of the lines and they exaggerate it even much, much more than it was exaggerated in this period. Um, that fiscal record from Samarra that I mentioned earlier is the earliest evidence of that that I've 
found. It's extraordinary how this aesthetic just kind of lingers because it, it, it's, a, it's an aesthetic that says that it kind of like, you know, is redolent of power. It's one way in which government officials performed the power of being government officials. Right. And so there's all these different ways in which the authority of the state is being channeled within the document itself. We've pointed already to the, um, what, the Tamar Lethe's reference to the, the privilege of waste, the sovereign privilege of waste. And then, um, yeah, and then the, the very proliferation of petitions and degrees themselves is making the state be felt um, to a, a greater extent than we otherwise I mean, might there's have the moral um, economy of these documents, reference but there's earlier also to the, the, the Afghan literal economy got me thinking about what these decrees and petitions are actually written on. So like a decade after Solomon Schechter himself empties out the Karaganiza, there's this other guy, Mark Stein, who then searches the Taklamakan Desert for documents. And as you say, you know, all right, Egypt might have had a couple of Ganizod, but the Taklamakan Desert in Central Asia had like 40 or more And, um, you know, I think this is another place where desert and civilization meet to produce this sort of archival treasure, sacred trash in Nadina Hoffman and Peter Cole's words. How can the the Taklamakan Desert's own Genizot tell us more about paper as the support of choice for fascinating state documents? And and why is it important Um, that paper was the material upon which so many of the the last 150 years? Um, So Josef von Karabacek, who um, was the director of the Vienna Papyrus Collection, in fact, he's the one who is responsible um, for bringing, you know, 100,000 papyri from Egypt to Vienna. So that's the largest collection of Arabic papyri that we have. Um, I mean, in Greek and Coptic and so forth. Um, So he he wrote a book on paper um, where he tried to understand the process by which paper um, became the the writing surface of choice in the Arabic speaking world. Um, When did this happen? How did it happen? And how did it come to pass that paper replaced papyrus, even in Egypt itself? I mean, in Egypt, papyrus had been the uh, writing support of choice for um, like literally 3000 years, if not more, um, when paper completely eradicated it over the course of just a 40-year period between 900 and 940. What was going on there? So von Karabacek put forward this theory. You know, he, I mean, he was writing in the late 19th century. So, um, you know, he was doing kind of the old style, like, let's look at the chroniclers and tell and see what they tell us. And he found quotations um, that, uh, that told a little story. And this story has been told kind of over and over and over again in the history of paper. And it turns out to be a complete falsehood. And the story is that at a very important battle um, at, uh, at Talas um, in Central Asia in 751, the Abbasids um, took a Chinese prisoner of war who taught them the craft of paper making. Um, so that was kind of the Arab discovery of paper. And then um, you have other chroniclers, including Ibn Khaldun, he repeats this, who tell us that the Abbasids um, founded paper mills in Baghdad under Harun al-Rashid. This is like, you know, so many of these administrative innovations are attributed to the period of Harun al-Rashid and to also the Barmakids, like to, hit, to the, the, the famous viziers of the Abbasids. So if you dig into the documentary record, including 
the material that came out of the Taklamakan Desert um, as a result of Mark Orlstein's um, travels, adventures, I want to say, because he was really an adventurer, um, you realize that, in fact, paper was totally common in Central Asia long before the Battle of Talas, and there's no way that the Arabs weren't encountering it before then. Um, this was actually a case that was cracked by Jonathan Bloom in his fantastic book, Paper Before Print. But the story turns out to be even more complex than he than he knew, because in 2016, some documents were excavated in Tajikistan um, that are the earliest surviving uh, Arabic script documents on paper. And they're from probably the 730s. They're undated. So maybe they come from like 760, a few years after Talas. Um, and I, so I started digging and I started saying, okay, well, how early can we go? It turns out that Arabs were writing on paper um, in documents that can be dated beyond the shadow of a doubt to between 720 and 722. Um, but they weren't writing in Arabic. They were actually writing in Sogdian. So um, Sogdian is an old Iranian language. And you have to imagine this is, you know, this is like the Umayyad frontier in the East. So you have these Umayyad administrators who are, you know, and generals who are basically pushing eastward into Central Asia. Um, and they're encountering these kind of petty local rulers. And so there's this one guy who's a Sogdian prince, king, unclear. I mean, he's kind of demoted in the Arabic chronicles. He's called like Sahib something or other. Um, but he styles himself an, a, an actual like royal personage, personage, even though he's in like a kind of, you know, deadlocked rivalry um, for the title with another guy, um, another Sogdian prince. So eventually this, this Sogdian prince is under house arrest for like 20 years. And there's a whole correspondence between him and, um, and, and the Umayyad governors who are holding him prisoner. Um, and so he's writing to them in Arabic and they're writing to him in Sogdian. Um, and some of that archive is on paper and some of it is on parchment. So this was like the smoking gun that the Arabs were writing on paper in the 720s. And so the Battle of Talas is, you know, like many things in medieval chronicles, a kind of, you know, cute myth um, that condenses a complex process into like a tellable um, anecdote. So, so then you still have to answer the question, once the Arabs discover paper, how does it become such a big deal that um, the Egyptians just kind of eat it up and adopt it between 900 and 940? Um, and there, I think the the chroniclers who talk about Harun al-Rashid um, kind of spreading paper, um, even if it didn't quite happen that way, there there is a kernel of truth. The Abbasids um, adopted paper. Um, for them, it became a kind of prestige material. Um, it was new. It was supple. It was uh you know, much more widely available than papyrus. They tried growing papyrus on the banks of the Tigris, didn't work out very well. Um, and, uh, and it was much less expensive than parchment. Now, paper wasn't dirt cheap. You need infrastructure to produce paper. It's not something that you can just do if you, if you don't have a source of running water, if you don't have a way of grinding the pulp. But one advantage um, that the Central Asians had in producing paper was that it's a rice culture. So they had these trip hammer mills that were capable of producing a much finer um, paper pulp than other places did. And so Samarkand became um, renowned for its paper production 
Um, and this is like throughout the Middle Ages. I mean, even you know into the 13th century, you see Samarkand um, renowned as a center of, of paper production. And so that's why the chroniclers um, wanted to memorialize the Battle of Talas as being kind of the place where paper was adopted because they were trying to choose somewhere that was close enough to Samarkand to explain why Samarkand was this great producer of paper. So by the time paper reaches Egypt in the late ninth century, it already has the prestige of the Abbasid Chancery attached to it. And who better than scribes would be open to the idea um, of writing on a material that has the prestige of a chancery attached to it? So then you begin to see the obsolescence of papyrus, and it's really a remarkably um, uh, quick obsolescence for any any medieval um, technology. That's fascinating. And it seems to me that affordability and ubiquity of paper is, in a way, the material condition of possibility for the privilege of waste um, that you were referring to earlier. But it's still a kind of puzzle to me, and, and maybe to the listeners as well, how it is that precisely the means through which the state's authority is expressed, whether it be at the, the rotalists or, or other sort of uses of paper, is then ritually dismembered and fragmented such that the collaborative nature of the Karaganiza project becomes necessary in the first place. So can you talk a little bit more about this sort of, I should I think explain the phrase, diplomatic because this is not a term that I knew before um, I wrote this book. And makes sense um, of this paradox refers to the kind of ritual dismemberment of the, the fragmentation um, of documents of, that are supposed know, like to be an animal sacrifice or something like that that happens in Greek mythology. So like, imagine like a Dionysian <laughs> ritual ending with some kind of, of dismemberment um, of, you know, of animal flesh so I, so I use the words for Agmos to, to talk about the dismemberment of these decrees. So first of all, the decrees that are being dismembered are the ones that are being sent to the local administrators who aren't expected to archive them. So, so that's the first thing to, to recognize is that though to us they have this kind of grandeur because they're very long and because of the sovereign privilege of waste and because of the calligraphy, and they would have had that kind of performative dimension for the officials, that doesn't mean that they were meant for posterity. And here we have a bias as historians, which is that we see a document that looks amazing and we think that looks amazing. That's really important. It must have been important in its time too. So it was important, but it was important only temporarily. So, so that's the first thing is that, you know, once you kind of let go of this idea that just because it looks good, it must have been meant for posterity in an archive, there, that, that link you have to uncouple. Because in fact, what the Fatimans were keeping in archives didn't look as good. It was small, it was scribbly, the calligraphy wasn't as nice. It was a much more kind of practical representation of the same text as opposed to this grand, performative, wasteful thing. So then the question is, and I have to say, I owe this to Conrad Hirschler because he kept pushing me on this as I was finishing writing the book. He himself has been working on some reuses um, of documents from um, the Damascus cache I referred to earlier. And what he found is that there are people who are inserting like their grandparents' marriage contracts into their books as pages to write over. And so, you know, he wanted to understand, like, is this kind of a method of archiving, even though you're also destroying the text as you're preserving it? Um, so I wouldn't go that far which is to say, I don't know that there really was an intent here, but because he kept pushing me, he, he kept saying, why are they doing this? Why are they reusing 
the decrees in particular in this way, I thought, you know, put yourself in the shoes of an 11th century scribe who's handling one of these amazing texts that was never meant for him or in rare cases, her. How would they have regarded it? There must have been some kind of lingering whiff of state power that attached itself to this document. So that was where I started playing with the idea of people are in a way like, you know, as the uh, old anarchist magazine used to have it eating the state. Right. And that reminds me of this um, moment in your book where you write that the sparagmos, again, this word um, of the Fatimid decree marks a kind of limit case, right? The preservation of documents was not some default mode, uh, deviations from which the historian has to explain, but rather it was a deliberate decision that officials made and enacted in specific cases for reasons that we have to try to research and and reconstruct rather than presume. And when I read this sentence, um, a a, a kind of different work about the archive came into my mind. Um, Anne Stoller um, wrote in Along the Archival Grain about the 19th century uh, Dutch colonial archives um, in a kind of contrast about the unsure and hesitant sorts of documentation and sensibilities that surrounded modern colonial administration, um, right? The colonial archive as records, in fact, of uncertainty and of doubt. Um, and the ways in which, you know, you're talking about how um, Fatimid period archival practicing uh, practices were more intentional than we might otherwise think. And Anne is thinking about the ways in which um, colonial archival content and practices are perhaps less intentional or less certain, at least, than we might think, made me kind of question what um, what exactly is it that we mean um, when we say modern and and pre-modern and and what sorts of investments um, we place in in making those distinctions, right? You you aren't the first, of course, to argue that the medieval Middle East was document rich, but the way in which your argument uh, distinguishes itself from, for example, Wal Halak's, um, is that you're actually arguing for archival practices as a testament to strong rather than weak institutions. Um, So can you reflect a little bit about how the writing and the work and the collaboration you've done for this book has transformed um, your understanding of what it means to be um, modern or or pre-modern? So I I would never argue that the modern and the pre-modern are the same. But I'm always fascinated how the differences lie a little bit off center from what we might imagine. So one, I mean, I think the probably the classic assumption that we're all in some ways battling as historians is that any pre-modern person, um, anything they do is motivated solely by piety, right? Um, this is this actually goes back to the explanation that for the Geniza, right, which is that people are depositing papers in the Geniza because they don't want the name of God to be casually destroyed, when in fact they could just be depositing stuff in the Geniza because they saw their you know, father and grandfather do it and they just never occurred to them to do it otherwise. Um, or as I tell my students, you know, people think that in the Middle Ages, somebody like drank a cup of water um, out of piety, um, when in fact, no, they drank a cup of water because they were thirsty. So you know, what are our um, kind of intuitive go-to explanations for why things happen? And, you know, with medieval statecraft, um, certainly in the Islamic world, I think there was a, a generalized assumption of, of lack of competence, right? Which is that 
um, people are administering by the seat of their pants and they don't really know um, what's going on um, or that they lack the resources to be able to do things efficiently. What I was seeing was a remarkable ingenuity um, in the sense that, okay, so the first kind of like basic thing that we have to erase from our minds is population density. Um, as people who, you know, live in a world that's approaching 8 billion um, extremely rapidly, right? So we're, we're going to double the population of the planet every, I don't know how many years, like not that many anymore. <clears throat> um, in the 11th century, I mean, the, the best population estimates that I could find say that the entire global population was 300 million, which is less than the population of the United States today. So population density, first of all, just like, you know, wipe that off the, off the slate of, of your mind. Um, and what that means is that there just aren't that many people who um, are on the ground administering. And given that, the way that states use documents is, is kind of remarkable for its leanness and its efficiency. Um, and, you know, that was what I was seeing in the archiving practices as well, is the idea isn't to preserve everything to have a record for everybody, but rather to just do the bare minimum that you need to in order to map time and space, which is really what an archive is about. An archive is about mapping time in the sense that you want a record of things that have happened in the past so that you can refer to them, you know, land tenure, things like that. All this has to go in the archive. And they're also about mapping space um, in the sense that you have to know where these territories are. And that was how the Fatimid archives were arranged in Cairo was according to year month and region. Um, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, there, there was a kind of dominant strain. I think anybody in, in pre-modern Middle Eastern studies is familiar with, with what I'm about to say, um, which is there was a dominant strain in the historiography um, of assuming that institutions in the medieval Middle East were generally weak, um, that things were informal, um, that patronage networks were pretty much what explains um, how anything ever got done. Um, and I mean, I was a very strong subscriber to this school in the first 10 years of my career. So it's all over my first book. It's all over the articles that I was writing during the aughts. Um, and then at some point, I was kind of forced to rethink this a little bit. And the person who forced me to rethink it was Nate Hofer in his book on um, on Sufism in medieval Egypt, because he actually went and read all of this literature on institutions. What are institutions? What, how do, what do sociologists mean when they talk about institutions? So it turns out sociologists mean something very different from what historians mean. When historians talk about institutions, the word that a sociologist would use for that is an organization. So for example, um, Princeton University, where I teach, is an organization. The seminar, the university seminar, is an institution in the sense that this is a kind of convention. This is how we teach, and we teach it this way because this is how we were taught. Um, and this way of teaching has a definite beginning, which is in you know the late 19th century at Johns Hopkins in the medical school and the history department, importing the German method of seminar teaching, that kind of thing. Um, a handshake is an institution. It's a socially legible code that has meaning and that reproduces itself because it has meaning. So like humans subscribe to it. So once you think about institutions in that kind of broader definition or more informal definition, actually the medieval Middle East was full of institutions and governmentality was full of institutions. 
So, um, so that's kind of what I was like playing around with is this idea that, that things were different in the pre-modern because um, institutional culture hadn't gelled. What I was fight, what I was fighting against um, is the, is a very old notion um, of the kind of ad hocness um, of Islamic legal culture. And this is something that was kind of, you know, inserted into the sociological literature by Max Weber, who coined the term um, Qadi justice. By the way, I should say I'm a huge Weber fan for all kinds of reasons. And, um, and I don't want to encourage anybody not to read Weber on the contrary. I, you know, economy and society is like the I Ching. Like I open it up and read a random page. And I think, my God, this guy was so unbelievably smart, even though his writing was really convoluted, but like, you know, always, always worth making your way into. But that having been said, Weber had this idea of Qadi justice um, as being the, the metaphor that he uses is uh, the analogy he uses is Sancho Panza um, with Don Quixote, like just kind of, you know, randomly um, issuing judgments because of personal relationships and because of, um, you know, how you want the outcome to be as opposed to following a kind of jurisprudence. So look, anybody who's ever read like, you know, five lines of sort um, of knows that things were much, much more complicated than that. So that's just a kind of, you know, tip of the iceberg um, for this kind of, you know, will to believe that, um, that, that medieval Muslim um, bureaucrats were, were running things by the seat of their pants. And they, they certainly weren't. Wow. Thank you so much, Marina, um, for enlightening us a bit today about um, medieval Islamic institutions um, and uh, Fatima documents. Um, as a last question, I was wondering um, what you're working on now um, and in the near future. I'm working on so many things. Um, <laughs> I'm on sabbatical this year, and so I kind of crammed a lot of a lot of stuff in, and and I'm super excited about literally all of it. So. Um, the first thing that I'm working on is totally rebuilding the Princeton Geniza project database. Um, so this is like, you know, my baby, it's a, it's an adopted baby because, um, it's existed since 1985 and I only became the director in, in 2015. Um, but what's amazing about the Princeton Geniza project is that it just kind of keeps going and it keeps building organically. Um, and the the way it's just kind of like accumulated over time. I mean, now we're at twenty eight thousand um, documents. Um, we've never actually sat down and had to rethink about like our data architecture, um, about our workflows. We have an enormous bottleneck now of document additions that we need to push out to the database, but we don't actually like we're still trying to figure out our workflow. Um, I mean, it's it's hilarious when I think about like in 2015, the PGP, like it was just me basically like staying up at night, like with spreadsheets. Um, and this year for the first time, we actually have like, um, you know, staff positions with like titles. Um, so I'm partnering with the Center for Digital Humanities at Princeton, and they're just amazing at understanding that workflow and all the kind of people relations um, and, you know, when, how often you have meetings and how you run meetings and how you document things, that all of that is part of running a database. So basically it's an education in digital humanities and I'm like super into it. The second thing, um, in terms of like collaborative projects is, um, <laughs> right at the beginning of lockdown, um, I read two books back to back that, um, launched a thousand ships. Um, one of them is Simon Mills's A Commerce of Knowledge. 
where he, um, it's a book about the um, chaplains to the uh, Levant Company, um, the British Levant Company um, in Aleppo, and basically how they acquired manuscripts while they were there. Um, so like, you know, he can tell you how much um, Pocock and Huntington paid for volumes of Al-Qalqashandi's um, Subh al-Asha in the 17th century that were eventually brought back to Oxford. So that was one book. And then I read Ahmed Ashamsi's book, um, uh, Printing the Arabic Classics. Um, is that actually the title? I can't remember anymore. But the point is, um, it's an amazing book. And these books kind of, they, they bookend this process by which Europe discovers um, Islamic manuscripts. So then I started thinking to myself, okay, what about Princeton's collection? So I started digging into the provenance history, which turns out to be completely fascinating. Um, about, I don't know, 2000 maybe of our manuscripts are from a guy from Medina, Adina Medini, who actually lived most of his life in Cairo and had access to some amazing libraries um, that he acquired and sold ultimately to the Brill Publishing House. Um, and then Princeton got it from, from there. Um, but the vast majority are from Avraham Shalom Yehuda, who is an uh, mostly Iraqi, partly German Jew born in Jerusalem um, in the 19th century, who um, was a, an amazing figure. He had the largest private collection of Islamic man manuscripts in the world um, at mid-century, and eventually Princeton bought them in 1942 um, due to the mediation of Philip Hitti and the funding of Robert Garrett. And it's like an amazing story. Um, it hasn't really been told fully yet. So two things are happening. One is I, I looked into the Princeton Library catalog and I said, oh my gosh, we have the largest collection of Islamic manuscripts in North America, like 16,000 works, um, of which about 1,200 have been digitized. I mean, that's less than 10%. Like there's no excuse for that. So I, um, right around the same time, we hired a new Near East Studies librarian, um, Deborah Schlein, who's amazing, um, and also a, a new um, uh, head of special collections, um, Will Noel, who is like, you know, a notorious uh, digitizer. Um, so basically, we're working on digitizing our collections on the one side. And on the other side, we're digging into the provenance history. So in June, we're going to have um, a workshop on Abraham Shalom Yehuda, and then hopefully followed maybe in a couple of years by one on Amin al-Medini. Um, so that's been great. And, you know, what's amazing about that for me, it's a total learning experience because I work on texts of one page um, and these are codices. So they're super intimidating for me, but I'm, I'm learning as much as I can about, um, about Arabic manuscripts and teaching my first graduate seminar on it in, in the fall. Um, so that's just been fantastic. Then there are my, my solo projects. So basically there, there are two of them. Um, the Lost Archive was actually meant to be the introduction to a book on petitions. Um, I started writing a book on petitions. I thought that Fatimid petitions were the most interesting Fatimid document we had. Turns out there are way, you know, more kinds of Fatimid documents than I realized. And I lost, I, I wrote the Lost Archive to basically map all the different types of documents. But now I still have to write my book on petitions. Like at some point in about 2016, I had a <laughs> petitions book off um, of the Lost Archive because it was just becoming too unwieldy. And I put a kind of teaser of the petitions um, book in chapter eight of the Lost Archive, but I, I have like maybe two thirds, maybe three quarters of, of the manuscript written. And so I'm trying to get that um, done. And before I do, I'm looking at all my documents again, um, you know, I'm able to read some things that I couldn't read four years ago, which is really exciting. 
um, and, uh, you know, working through, working through the archive and then hopefully going to get back to writing in January. Um, and then I'm also supposed to be writing up some lectures that I gave at the University of Washington um, in 2018, I think. Um, basically, it's, it's an introduction to um, the Geniza from two perspectives. One is daily life and material culture in medieval Cairo. So kind of like, what would it feel like to live there? Um, and, uh, and the second is a kind of like, you know, highlights of what you actually find in the Geniza and what it's like to be a philologist working on this stuff. Essentially, I want to write an introduction to the Geniza that's, um, you know, it's not like sacred trash because it's not about how the stuff was discovered. And it's not like a Mediterranean society because it's not like, you know, a kind of massive compilation of erudite scholarship. I'm trying to tell stories. Um, in other words, to introduce the Geniza in such a way that undergraduates can understand, you know, why it's so exciting and why, um, why there are a couple dozen of us who, uh, you know, stay up late at night trying to decipher these documents. Can you tell us your favorite fact about uh, daily life in medieval Cairo? Oh, yeah, I totally can. Take out food. Um, this was, I mean, this is not my discovery. Like, it's actually in Goytan's Mediterranean Society, but like many things in that book, I mean, there's so much there that like, the penny doesn't really drop until you actually sit and think about it. And so, um, you know, one fine year, um, I got interested in food in the Geniza and I read as much as I could about it. And I, and, you know, it's just, it's like a basic, it's kind of obvious if you think about it, except I'd never thought about it, which is in, in pre-modern conditions, one of the last places that you actually want an open fire is your house. Um, so people didn't cook at home. There might have been a bread oven in the courtyard of, um, of the building compound that they lived in, but that was, you know, kind of max. So what they did was they took their little like tiffin um, to the bazaar and they bought warm food there and brought it home. And when I think about, you know, the experiences that I've had in, in modern Cairo, um, I'm not claiming that there's continuity between the medieval and the modern here because I have no idea, but it did just um, like charm me uh, to pieces that, um, you know, Kyrians will say, like, you know, why would you ever leave your house if you don't absolutely have to? Like, obviously, what you do is you make a phone call and things get delivered to your door. In my case, I had, like, the best cronut I've ever eaten in my entire life delivered to my door at 730 in the morning in Cairo together with two Advil. Um, and, <laughs> and I said to my, you know, this really left you such change. So, um, so yes, it was, Cairo was the, was the international capital of takeout food a thousand years ago. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Marina, it has been um, an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Um, for those of you who are listening and want more, be sure to check out Marina's uh, Stroom lectures at the University of Washington, Seattle, or UW, on YouTube. Also, she did not tell me to advertise that. I am advertising that because they are excellent. Um, and of course, be sure to check out Marina's new book, the Lost Archive, Traces of a Caliphate in the Cairo Synagogue, again, published with Princeton University Press. I'm Nancy Coe, your host for New Books in Islamic Studies, and we've been chatting today with Marina Rastow, the Khidori Abudizilcha Professor of Jewish Civilization in the Near East at Princeton. Thanks so much for listening.